Easter reminds me Jesus is with me always. This has been a Christ Center communication message. I'm Vanessa Dunhagarmo, a communications evangelist and host of Epiphany. This is 990 WDEO, Ypsilanti, Detroit, or on the Internet at WDEO.net. In the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, taking a closer Catholic look at current events, issues, and ideas. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. A very good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for joining me today and uh, reminding you we try to have conversations of consequence. Today, we talk with Claire Caldwell. Amazing story. Uh, she's a survivor uh, of abortion. She was raised in a loving home, always knew she had been adopted, and when she reached adulthood, she decided to meet her birth mother. And that's when she got the shock of her life. Claire learned that she was a survivor of a botched abortion. Not only that, but she had an unborn twin whose life was terminated that day. And the story doesn't end there. So, you know, she's going to join us today, and we'll, we'll enjoy this. I'm going to spend some time remembering Father Richard John Newhouse, uh, who I knew before he was Father Richard John Newhouse. I knew him as a Lutheran pastor. We met only once, but uh, he was a, a fairly, fairly regular guest on my talk programs over the years. And uh, I, I'll tell you, his absence or his death left a hole in uh, the conversation in America about religion and politics. I want to address that and also uh, share with you much from an uh, an essay by Nathaniel Peters, outstanding essay on the life of Richard John Newhouse, or the influence of Richard John Newhouse. And uh, we'll have that available for you in the Cresta Guest Archives. But it was published in Public Discourse, Nathaniel Peters. If you get a chance, read it. It's great. In the second hour of today's program, we have had a lot of fun in the last few months here in Michigan over football. The Detroit Lions have won a playoff game for the first time in more than 30 years. And, of course, the University of Michigan Wolverines wrapped up a perfect, perfect season, 15 to nothing, with a 34-13 victory over, the, over Washington in the national championship game. And throughout the season, many Michigan players, as well as uh, Coach Jim Harbaugh, were outspoken about their faith. We're going to be joined by my longtime colleague, Steve Clark, who's our director of operations here at Alvin Maria Radio. But he's also, he covers U of M football for WTKA. And then Matthew Bunsen joins us. Chaos deepening as Dutch bishops collectively reject blessings for same-sex couples. First, though, the news. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Friday, January 19th, it's the Feast of St. Philip. Today's news brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Arctic cold is blanketing much of the nation with 95 million Americans under winter weather advisories. The Northwest is coping with freezing rain, while the Midwest and East will see another round of snow. Forecasters say warmer weather should be on the way for many starting early next week. 
The government will remain funded for at least another month. President Biden signing a stopgap bill that was approved Thursday by the House and Senate. The new deadlines for lawmakers to finish the formal appropriations process are March 1st for four bills and March 8th for eight others. In an apparent rift with the White House, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he told the U.S. he rejects the idea of a Palestinian state being created after the war in Gaza is over. The Biden administration has suggested it will keep pressing on the issue as they work with Middle Eastern powers to make a plan to end the fighting. The Biden administration also forgiving nearly $5 billion in student debt for about 74,000 Americans. The White House says more than half of the borrowers eligible for the debt relief are teachers, nurses, firefighters, and others who have been on the public service loan forgiveness program for 10 years. It's the latest round of debt cancellations since the Supreme Court struck down the president's sweeping student loan forgiveness program. And President Trump is receiving support from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and other Republicans to be on Colorado's primary ballot. The brief signed by supporters argues against the state Supreme Court decision to remove him for violating the 14th Amendment insurrection clause stemming from the 2021 Capitol riot. More than 40 Senate Republicans and 177 other congressional lawmakers are supporting Trump's effort. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Claire Colwell, was raised in a loving uh, Christian home. Always knew that she had been adopted, and she, as she grew into adulthood, she reached uh, out to her meet her birth mother, and that's when she got the shock of her life because Claire learned she was a survivor of a botched abortion, and not only that, but she had an unborn twin whose life was in fact terminated that day. But the story doesn't end there. Uh, she has written the book Survivor, an abortion survivor's surprising story of choosing forgiveness and finding redemption. And Claire joins us today. Claire, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's uh, tell me a little bit about uh, you know the home you were raised in and the environment there, the spiritual environment. Yeah, thanks for asking. I I grew up in a Christian home. I was adopted by a couple from Texas who lived in Dallas, Texas at the time, um, who actually worked for uh, what was at the time Campus Crusade for Christ, which is crew now. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up on on a really solid foundation, um, knew about um, what Christ offered to me through the cross, um, was obviously a believer. I was raised on grace and love and forgiveness. Those were things that were modeled to me uh, throughout my life. And I think one of the most significant things about my upbringing is that I was told all my life as an adopted child, and my sister was also told this because my sister is also adopted, uh, that we were wanted, chosen, and loved. And uh, we knew that circumstances would never change those things about ourselves and our family, but also um, circumstances wouldn't change uh, what God says about us, that we're children of God, that um, he wants to redeem and restore and, and make new, and that he... Um, 
you know, doesn't see so many things that the world defines us by, but, but by what he says we are. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so many of those things actually prepared me for what I would find out, the shocking things that I would find out when I was 21 years old and reunited with my birth mother. Were you uh, curious uh, about your birth mother growing up, being adopted? I, I would imagine so, but I don't know that. My sister and I uh, grew up always knowing that we were adopted. We actually don't remember we were uh, finding out that we were adopted, but we always knew that we had birth mothers, and we knew that our family was so thankful for our birth mothers that our family wouldn't be complete without our birth mothers. But we also knew that, you know, there were pieces of the puzzle that we might find out one day that would be um, something that we wouldn't expect, but... Uh, I remember growing up, my sister and I would play orphans, and we laugh about that now because we truly were, like, we're adopted, and um, I think it's because most people had seen Annie, you know, around that time, and uh-huh. that, was, that was such a big hit, and that was people's perception of adoption, right. and, and we remember people, you know, saying, gosh, so sorry that you're adopted, and, and we were like, well, why? I mean, adoption is this incredible thing. We have birth mothers that loved us so much that they gave us our family, that they gave us our life. And so we were curious, but we were so secure in who we were just because of how our parents raised us. And so both of us reunited with our birth mothers um, in our adult years. Okay. And was that uh, that a a growing uh, desire, or did you always plan that you would one day do that? I don't know that that we really planned to meet our birth mothers. It just so happened that my sister uh, met her birth mother when she was 17. She was visiting uh, the state that her birth mother lived in, and my sister had an open adoption, and so my parents actually knew my sister's birth mother. And so my desire to meet my birth mother came from watching my sister reunite with her birth mother. Mm -hmm. And... The day that I was able to meet my sister's birth mother, I got to see, like, gosh, they they look so much alike. They act so much alike. I remember they put their feet next to each other um, because the day my sister was born, they had commented on how my sister had long feet like her birth mother. And so they compared their foot size, and they actually wore the same size shoe when they reunited. And it was those little things that that kind of got my head spinning about, okay, what, what's my birth mother like? And I was able to thank my sister's birth mother for giving me my sister. And that was the moment that I realized um, as I did that, that I hadn't taken the time to um, really think about my birth mother, but even thank her for giving me such an incredible gift in my uh, life and my family. And so that day I went home and I talked to my parents about the possibility of meeting my birth mother. Were there any legal hurdles that you had to overcome or policy hurdles you had to overcome to, uh, to meet your birth mother? 
I called my adoption agency, and uh, the crazy thing is that my birth mother's caseworker, when she was living at this adoption agency that was um, a live-in type of maternity home at the time as well, uh, the, her caseworker was 21 years later working in the reunion side. And so my oh. birth mother's caseworker was able to reunite my birth mother and I. And when I called and uh and told her, her name was Debbie, and I said, Debbie, I'd like to meet my birth mother. She said, oh, my goodness, I am actually sitting uh, at my desk, and I have your baby picture on my desk, and I, I can see the little cast on your feet and this harness that was on your hips when you were in the hospital because I had a lot of physical complications when I was born. And that was like my first glimpse of, of what would come. I had no idea uh, what I was find out but um it was as simple as as calling my adoption agency she searched for my birth mother and my birth mother had surprisingly been waiting uh 21 years for that phone call and was so excited to oh see. very good very good so uh tell me about the day that you met what was that like the day we met was gosh it was nerve-wracking i remember uh just thinking, like, what music do we play? What, what do we even say? What pictures do we show her? Do we say too much? Do we say little? <laughs> we didn't know what to expect. Right. Um, and and that day, we she knocked on the door, and I opened the door for the first time, and looking at her was like looking in the mirror, and I knew instantly that I just adored this woman who was my birth mother that had, had done so much for me. Um, and, and so we had this great time. We spent uh, two days together, my family and her family, and um, she actually told my mom that day uh, that I had survived her abortion, and she said, should I tell Claire? And my mom said, well, maybe you should wait because we're enjoying this time, and, and she's just getting to know you, and so maybe you should wait. And so um, she didn't tell me that day, but we set up a second meeting because we enjoyed being together so much, and I wanted to continue to get to know her. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the moment of disclosure. What was that like? The moment was, uh, it was our second meeting, and I flew to Oklahoma where she lived. I live in Texas and uh, grew up in Austin. And I flew from Austin to Oklahoma, uh, where she lived. She was still living where she grew up uh, when she was pregnant with me. And I got to see kind of what that would have been like if she had kept me and raised me. And um, got to meet her her daughters and spend time with them. And uh, on the way, I, I brought a gift. I brought a ring and a necklace with my birthstone on it. And I had a card. And I was on the plane uh, flying to Oklahoma. And I thought, what? in the world do I begin? You know, how can I summarize what she's done for me? And I didn't know, and so I just wrote, thank you for choosing life for me. And I sealed it up, and I, when I got there, I gave her this gift, and I watched as she opened the ring and the necklace, and she cried happy tears, and uh, she asked me to put the necklace on her, and it was that moment as I was fastening the necklace on her that I watched her read the card and read the words that were in the card, and 
everything instantly changed in that moment. And I, I, I thought, this is supposed to be this happy moment, and yet I'm looking into the eyes of my birth mother, and her tears, her pain were, were unlike anything I had ever seen before. I knew that I had not experienced that type of pain before, and I thought, what, what, is, what is she about to tell me? I knew that whatever it was would be life-changing. And she took me into a room in her house, and she began to tell me about being pregnant with me at 13 years old and she said her mother told her that there was one choice for her that having an abortion is what was best for her and so my birth mother had a D&E abortion procedure which is still the most commonly used late-term abortion procedure today uh, it dismembers the baby's body limb by limb mm-hmm. and um, she she went back to the doctor a few weeks later even though they had told her that it would be successful that her life would go back to normal the same things that they tell women that go into abortion clinics today is what they told her and she went back to the doctor and they said oops you were actually pregnant with twins and we got one of the babies but one of the babies is still alive and so my birth mother was driven to kansas to have a second abortion because it was legal there and uh, she went into this other abortion clinic and uh, was ready to have her abortion, but they said that they couldn't do it because they had ripped the amniotic sac that I was in, and she was leaking fluid for weeks, and it would have been too dangerous for her to perform a second abortion. And so my birth mother was dropped off at um, the adoption agency where Debbie was her caseworker, and she lived there for a few weeks until I was born at 30 weeks. Uh, She delivered me a alone in a hospital room um, surrounded by nurses and doctors who never even asked her what her choice would have been, what yeah. what they could do to empower her and to support her to be a mother or to place for adoption um, if that was her choice. And so uh, I was born at 30 weeks. I weighed three pounds. I had a dislocated hip and club feet and went through um, cast on my feet, a harness on my hips, and actually full body cast to correct these complications that I was born with. Um, And then at two months old, when I was released from the hospital, I was adopted by my parents. And so um, it was the most shocking moment of my life. I felt like the room was spinning, like this this can't be true. I had certainly never heard of anything like this before. Um, I had not thought much about the abortion issue, much less that a baby could survive an abortion. And here I was finding out that that was our story. Wow. Well, we'll come back on the other side of the break and continue the conversation. Um, And your birth mother was 13 years old? She was. Wow. Yes, sir. Wow. All right, Claire, hold it there. We'll come back. My guest, Claire Colwell, has written a moving uh, memoir, Survivor, the abortion survivor's surprising story of choosing forgiveness and finding redemption. We've got more to go. Beckway Door is a top provider of garage doors as well as home entry, patio, and storm doors. Locally owned since 1978, we give free, no-pressure quotes at prices 20% lower than most competitors and often provide same-day service for garage door repairs. Mention Ave Maria Radio for 10% off the replacement or service of your garage door or the installation of new exterior doors. Visit BeckwayDoor.com. That's BeckwayDoor.com. 
Sacred Heart Catholic School in Dearborn is having its open house January 28th from 1230 to 230. All current and prospective families may join them for Mass earlier at 1130 a.m. Sacred Heart is a pre-K to 8th grade school that has been educating students for over 100 years, focusing on academic excellence, faith formation, and service inspired by the teachings of Jesus. To join, call the school office at 313-561-9192 to register. That's 313-561-9192. New Year's resolutions are here, and the top of everyone's list is start eating better. But food need in Southeast Michigan is at an all-time high, and folks need your help. Not to eat better, but to eat it all. This year, make a resolution that makes lives better. Partner with Hope Clinic to provide free medical, dental, food, and behavioral health care, all in Jesus' name. Right now, you can take Hope Clinic's 2024 challenge. Sign up to give 2024 a month to show that you value whole person care. Because the true definition of eating better in the new year is knowing that your neighbors have enough to eat, too. Take the challenge now at thehopeclinic.org. Unveiling the Covenant is the newest program from Ave Maria Radio. What is a covenant? It's a vowed exchange of lives which results in an unbreakable family bond. Throughout Scripture, God seeks to espouse all mankind to Himself in an unbreakable covenant bond. His covenantal love is a free gift, but it necessitates a response from us. We are free to accept or reject it. Let's learn what this means as we unveil the covenants. Saturday mornings at 11 and Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. St. Ignatius of Loyola describes the challenging characteristics of spiritual desolation in the fourth rule of his 14 rules for the discernment of spirits. St. Ignatius states that finding oneself totally slothful, tepid, sad, falls within the experience of spiritual desolation. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, The adverb totally is powerful here. Ignatius applies it to three further forms of spiritual desolation. Persons in such desolation may experience themselves as entirely slothful, tepid, and sad. When a person finds themselves totally slothful, they lack spiritual vitality. When a person is tepid, they lack spiritual zeal. And when they experience a sadness connected to their life of faith, they lack interior joy. Have you asked for the grace to identify and reject spiritual desolation in your life today? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta with me, Claire Colwell, author of the memoir Survivor, an abortion survivor's surprising story of choosing forgiveness and finding redemption. We're at the place in the story where Claire, at uh, age 21, I believe, uh, has just heard from her birth mother 
that, um, well, um, that she had basically had almost been aborted twice. And uh, we're at the place where what happens next? When you heard the words that you had been almost aborted twice, what did you think and feel towards your birth mother? In that moment, I, I don't even think I could process anything beyond her tears. I mean, her, the look in her eyes, the pain in the way that she described what she had experienced, this was, this was something she had not shared with anyone for 21 years. Yeah. Her children didn't know. Her father didn't know. Um, her husband, um, I think he knew, but, but she hadn't talked with anyone about this because her mother had told her at 13 years old when she was pregnant with me that you're going to shut up about this and no one's going to know and you're going to go back to school and you're going to pretend like things are normal. And they weren't. And so she, she shoved it aside and, and tried to go back to normal. And she did that for the next 21 years. And so the loudest thing in the room that day was my, were my birth mother's tears. Yeah. And, and I think it was, it was days later when I went home and I began to process this, this news that I began to think about how this truly affected me and my family and the fact that I had been a twin and that I was missing the person that I would have been closest to for the rest of my life, just knowing what I know about um, twin relationships, and that I had been next to my twin during the abortion procedure that successfully dismembered my twin. And so that reality um, would come weeks later, and it was so shocking because I realized that the person who'd, who'd been affected by abortion was someone like me, someone like my birth mother, and I felt sure my entire life that I would not be the person that had been affected by abortion. That just wasn't going to be my story. Mm-hmm. And yet I faced the reality that every day for the rest of my life I would live in a world that didn't want me to exist even though the greatest injustice of our time had taken the life of my twin and attempted to take my life. And um, it, it was. It was the most shocking moment of my life. But her tears um, pointed me to forgive my birth mother. And people people ask me all the time, like, gosh, how could you, how could you forgive her? Um, in that moment, just instantly, how could you forgive her? And I think there's there's two things to that. You know, I put myself in her shoes at 13 years old. Who do you trust? Mm-hmm. Um, it's your parents, mm-hmm. right? That they they know what's best for you. They're going to make decisions for you that are for your good. And so if I had been in her shoes, I can't say that I wouldn't have done the same thing. But also um, how I was raised. You know, I was raised on love and grace and forgiveness. And, and um, my parents had modeled that to me for my entire life because they knew that God had forgiven us. And so I knew um, that my birth mother, the same things that God said about me um, and the, the good that God wanted to bring out of my circumstances and my pain and uh, the way that he, you know, died on the cross for my sins um, and the forgiveness that he had for me, that all of that was available to her too. And this was my opportunity to model that and to begin her healing journey and my healing journey through my forgiveness for my birth mother. And so I chose to forgive her that day, and every single day I wake up and I choose to forgive her and her mother um, again because that is what Christ has done for us. Mm -hmm. 
did you speak those words of forgiveness to her? Did you meet with her? Um, you know, once you had a chance to absorb this, did you get back together and let her know how you were handling it? I did. I, I actually told her that day. I remember her just saying over and over, I'm so sorry, Claire. Uh-huh. Uh, your life is a miracle. I'm so sorry. And she she fully expected me to run out of the room that day and uh-huh. not to look back. Um, she told me that so many times over the years. Um, but I embraced her. I remember hugging her and holding her and just telling her, I forgive you and I'm so sorry for what abortion did to you and to me and to our family. And she's heard me speak those words across the country. I've shared my story um, thousands of times across the country, and I make sure that every single time I tell my story, it comes from a place of forgiveness because I knew that she needed to hear those words in order to accept um, not only my forgiveness for her, but God's forgiveness for her. And the incredible piece is that um, she has. She has come to know the Lord. She has accepted his forgiveness for her. She has shared her story um, publicly by video two times. Wow. Um, and, and the first time that she shared it, actually, she looked at me and she just said, thank you, Claire. Because of this, I feel free. Because of this, I know that, that some little girl that's 13 years old, 13 years old, like I was, won't have to go through what I have. And because of that, everything I went through will be worth it. And so it's been incredible as I've seen the the forgiveness aspect and what God's been able to do, uh, not only in my life, but in her life, too. Yeah. It's it's an incredible, incredible story. And before this disclosure on the part of your birth mother, her name is Tanya. It is, Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, um, um, uh, Tanya was 13 years old when she sought to abort you and your twin, who in fact was aborted. Um, You know, when you first learned this from Tanya, you hadn't really given abortion a lot of thought. I mean, you were raised in a... a in a devout Christian home, when you were active, as had, you had a, had a missionary impulse in you, and you knew that, uh, I'm sure you knew abortion was nothing that you'd want to engage in. But did this all of a sudden so alter your sense of self and your sense of purpose and mission that you believed that you had to do something now directly related to ending abortion? Absolutely. Um, I think the moment you you come face to face with the fact that um, abortion tried to end your life, that abortion harmed and hurt uh, your birth mother and altered her life forever um, and took the person that would have been closest to you, your twin sibling, away from you, um, that reaction is just kind of there. And I think it it humanized this issue for me because what I had heard about abortion, I knew that adoption was a better choice just because I was adopted. I knew the gift in that. But beyond that, I didn't know anyone who had been affected by abortion. Mm -hmm. You're right. I hadn't thought about this issue. And so to me, and what society was telling me and all of us, was that abortion was this political issue. And in that moment, I realized that abortion that abortion was a human issue, right. that, that, that choice had a face and a name, and that choice was a person, a, a human person like me and like my twin. 
and and later on I would become a mother and realize that that it even has a face in the generations to come because my children wouldn't be here if that abortion had successfully taken my life. And so it humanized this issue for me, but it also showed me what our society was lacking and and how the apathy amongst um, especially believers and Christians and um, churches Mm Uh, because I'm not Catholic, I, I noticed that the Catholic Church was doing something, and yet Christian, Protestant, evangelical churches were apathetic and they were silent. And I realized that that's what my birth mother was longing for. She wanted someone who, in her moment of desperation, in her moment of confusion and not knowing what she was going to do and feeling like nobody was there for her, nobody asked her questions, nobody was supporting her to know that she was strong enough, that she could do it, that she was worth it, um, that that is what was leading women into abortion clinics, because when when we are apathetic, when we clump abortion into a political issue, we are saying that there is no grace. There is no mercy and there is no hope in the church for women who are contemplating abortion, who find themselves in an unplanned pregnancy situation, or who who have experienced an abortion in their past. And so that is sending women into abortion clinics as their safe place because they don't know where they can turn. And so it humanized this issue for me and it opened my eyes to what we're missing and what we can do better. And so my natural response was just, Okay, I've got to do something. I mean, God spared my life for a purpose, and I can stay in my lane. I can stay in my comfort zone. Speaking about the most controversial issue of our time is, is definitely not in my comfort zone. I'm an introvert by by nature, um, but with God, I can do anything. With God, I can make a difference. And He gave me this story, and He gave me my humanity and my faith and my name for such a time as this, so that our culture can have this window to the womb through the abortion survivor because when you look at my face you're literally looking at the face of my twin and so you're literally looking at that unborn child and And she's not here that i had to do something yeah 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 and she's not here you know i mean that's that is uh, a stunning realization and I, i i tanya at 13 years old i don't know how she could have chosen otherwise. I mean, a 13-year-old girl with an unexpected pregnancy, a crisis pregnancy, whose mother is encouraging her to abort, what would it take to resist that? I mean, I I just, I can't imagine what it would have been like for her to, you know, choose uh, uh, to avoid abortion at that, under those circumstances. Um, I think it stems, you know, from, from what we just talked about, because it's her... If her family, if her parents had known that there was no shame, that, that God created every life with a purpose, regardless of circumstances, that's right. designed that life, um, if they had known that there was a support group that they as a family could fall back on and right. that the people would walk alongside them through this journey, then they would have been able to support their daughter um, through choosing life or choosing adoption as, as their first option instead of um, choosing abortion and then choosing adoption after. It failed. Claire, we're just about out of time. Uh, how can people stay abreast of the work that you're doing and uh, you know know where you're speaking and that kind of thing? 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, my website is clairecolwell.com. Um, I have a newsletter on there you can sign up for uh, to get updates on, on speaking and so many other ministry opportunities that people can get involved in. I just started a campaign where people can write letters to women like my birth mother to uplift them, to encourage them. Um, and uh, on social media, at Claire Colwell. I'd love to connect with you. Okay, we'll make sure all those uh, addresses are linked at our side as well. Claire, wonderful having you with me. I hope we can talk again in the future. Thanks. Thank you so much. Claire Colwell, survivor. An abortion survivor's surprising story of choosing forgiveness, finding redemption. And there's more to the story that we didn't get to. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christendom College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresta when applying. That's bestweekever.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIKE-US1. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Most parents would like to raise generous kids, but where do you start? Well, authentic generosity doesn't start with serving strangers. It starts with looking for little ways families can make each other's lives easier at home. Start a new habit in your family. Make it a rule that everyone should look for one way to leave a room better than they found it. It doesn't matter who left the coat off the hook or who left the toy on the floor. If you see it, deal with it. The important point is, good teams don't bicker about whose job something is, because everybody on the team is just committed to giving their all to get the job done. Practicing generous service at home is one of the most important things Catholic families can do. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace, and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. When I heard other business owners say they finally found someone in the credit card industry they can trust, I wondered how he could help me. 
So when Mark from Schistler CPC offered to show me where all the money goes for credit card processing for the free analysis of my business, I jumped on it. He reviewed how the industry works, where we could save, and offered a no-contract guarantee on savings and excellent customer service. I'm saving thousands of dollars a year. Schistler CPC. Trust in them. More information available on the Ave Maria website under Sponsor Business Directory. Resetting your password. Unsubscribing from emails. Printing anything. Why are simple things sometimes so complicated? Thankfully, with an auto owner's insurance independent agent, getting the right coverage for your business doesn't have to be one of them. So you can get back to more important things, like learning how that printer works. That's simple human sense. Call Choice Insurance Agency at 734-641-4200. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I was reminded by an outstanding article by Nathaniel Peters in Public Discourse, which I'm going to quote from quite a bit here, that 15 years ago this month, Father Newhouse, Richard John Newhouse, entered eternity. And I have to say, uh, his passing into eternity left for me and many others a big hole in America's public conversation about religion and public life. He was especially important to me. I discovered... Well, I knew of him, but I discovered his book, Naked Public Square, when I was attending Protestant Seminary, Ashland Theological Seminary, and it addressed many issues that had been bothering me about Christian activism. It seemed to me at the time that secularists were trying to interpret the First Amendment uh, in order to impose a secular worldview world on us. But those most, fitting, most visibly fighting against the secularists seemed to believe that we could impose a Christian America worldview on people. Newhouse gave me a way of working through these issues. He was first a Lutheran pastor before he became a Catholic priest. And uh, as I said, he'd been very influential in my own life and my turn toward Catholicism. We had met only once. But he'd been a guest many times on my program over 20 years, and I like to think it was a divine providence that I decided to return to the Catholic Church on the very same day that, unbeknownst to me, Richard John Newhouse was ordained as Father Richard John Newhouse. Uh, as Nathaniel Peters points out, in the years since his death, the political and ecclesiastical landscape has deteriorated in ways Newhouse could not have fully imagined. I'll say that again. The political and ecclesiastical landscape has deteriorated in many ways that Newhouse could not have fully imagined. And yet his final book, published after his death, was called American Babylon. And in it, he reminds Christians how we should think about our citizenship in this world and in the next. We have to live as a people who are not at home, but live in time towards our home. A major theme for Newhouse was his definition of politics. He borrowed from Aristotle a definition of politics as the process by which we determine how we ought to order our lives together. But it was more than just a paraphrase of Aristotle. First, how we ought to order our life together teaches that politics is not a matter of philosophical speculation, but practical reason. It's not about reaching the right metaphysical conclusions and then trying to build a perfect program from them. Rather, politics consists of acting for the good that's possible now with all the messiness and compromise that might entail. 
He pointed out, politics does not require the constant refinement of intellectual diagnoses and ideals. It does require thinking how best to put our common life in order, warts and all. Again, politics deals with our life together, here and now, not in the life to come. And Newhouse repeated time and again that the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not first. The first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. Political advocacy, political activism can never replace our hunger for God. The divine perfection for which we long can only be attained in union with God, not through the implementation of a political program. Politics pertains to our life together here and now, not in the life to come. He stressed that the ordering of our common life requires a moral foundation. And that moral foundation is pre-political. In other words, it's something held before the passage of laws. That moral foundation requires a general consensus about the goodness of human life, and it's being lived under some kind of transcendental law or principle or person, God. Without this recognition of a higher source of morality and the dignity of human beings, the American experiment would fail. Newhouse's goal was not to replace liberal politics with political religion. It was to recover and sustain a common morality whose deliberations could draw on transcendental meanings. Newhouse framed this as fighting against the naked public square. We must replace the naked public square, not with the sacred public square, that can only be found in the New Jerusalem. But in this, we have to replace it, the naked public square with the civil public square, where all have a right to participate. Not only because they are citizens entitled to participate by our Constitution, but also more fundamentally, because we recognize that they are possessed of a human dignity that cannot be denied without threatening the ever-fragile earthly city on which we all depend. His most famous contribution was probably First Things Magazine and his book, Naked Public Square, Religion and Democracy in America. It was about religion, culture, and politics in the context of the 1980s. American secularism is what he addresses there. It complains about the way strict separationists of church and state interpret the First Amendment. They leave the public square naked. And what this means is that those who are motivated by religious or biblical principles are ruled out of participating because they won't abandon their religious reasoning for secular reasoning. Now imagine telling the black ministers who fought for the end of segregation that they should stop trying to impose their biblical religion on us. It would be absurd. They fought against racism because it was ungodly and un-American. And there have been complaints against the pro-life movement, right? You've heard them get your rosaries off my ovaries, saying that pro-life legislation is invalid because it's Catholic or biblical. Newhouse wrote against the secularists who want to strip the public square of its moral foundation and its transcendental source of morality. He also wrote against the Christian nationalists. At that time, those who claimed that America is a Christian country or that we have to recover America as a Christian country. The moral majority, which was in vogue at the time, was wrong, he said, to dream of a Christian America. 
But they were right to object to the secular ideology of the naked public square. The secularist dogma that would exclude religion and religiously grounded values from the public debate. America is not a secular society, even though many of our elite thinkers in recent years have come to believe so. Most Americans still identify themselves as believers in God, and they claim that the Judeo-Christian tradition is somehow morally important for our public life together and for their private life. And for Newhouse, as for many thinkers in the classical and Catholic tradition, politics is largely a function of culture, and religion is at the heart of culture. Culture eventually can be shown to flow from cult. Religion has political implications. It's not right or reasonable Americans to tell Americans that they can only enter the public arena if they agree to check their deepest beliefs at the door. Newhouse did know that, yeah, intermixing religion and politics can lead to fanaticism and the attempt to impose religious beliefs on all in society. But, you know, after the colonial experience, America has always been a pluralist society. Baptists, Congregationalists, Methodists, Catholics, Presbyterians, Quakers, Jews, Atheists, all had to learn to live together. Many came from England, which had a state church. But the states, uh, you know, the 13 colonies that had state church models, eventually abandoned them. In my home state of Connecticut, the Congregational Church was disestablished uh, in 1818, nearly two decades after the First Amendment of the Constitution banned the federal government from making any national law respecting an establishment of religion. Uh, They saw that they had to accommodate for those in minority religions or those with no religion at all. Minorities needed ironclad assurances that their views uh, and values would be respected by the religious majority. Jews in particular were and are especially sensitive to talk about a Christian America. The sacred canopy of Judeo-Christian biblical religion that has been erected over American society from its start must check the overreach of the state but must also attempt the overreach of churches who want to impose a one-size-fits-all view on all. Newhouse saw Martin Luther King's uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference as an example of rejecting the naked public square. The CLC was an organization made up originally of black pastors who motivated a religious people with religious song, religious language, to achieve goals acceptable to a pluralist society. They fought racism, as I said earlier, because it was ungodly and un-American. And Martin Luther King Jr., in spite of his moral imperfections, made it clear that he was motivated as a pastor responsible for the spiritual lives of others. And segregation beat them down and stripped them of human dignity. And you can see in the 1965 coverage of the march from Selma to Montgomery, in the press coverage, they emphasize a wide range of religious figures who were attending the march. I just watched the movie Selma again a few nights ago. And the director of the movie clearly wanted to show a wide range of religious individuals coming together. Catholic nuns, Jewish rabbis, liberal white Protestants, even atheists fought alongside black Baptist pastors because they saw in segregation a barrier to justice and a threat to a diverse America. For many of us, 
these issues of religion and public life are safely in the realm of ideas. But it wasn't too long ago that it was a matter of life and death. I mentioned the Selma March. Those who imposed state segregation laws often did so by appeal to Scripture and a twisted notion of a Christian America. And those ideas were dangerous. James Reeb, the Unitarian minister, Jimmy Lee Jackson, the Baptist deacon, Viola Liuza from Detroit, a Catholic and then Unitarian, were all murdered in Selma, in activities stemming from the march. John Lewis, who just died a few years ago, was motivated uh, as a young man by Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr. He went on to be a Baptist minister and then a member of Congress. He suffered a fractured, a fractured skull during the march. So those, let me stress, those who murdered and did violence to them were thugs. They didn't need scripture to kill. But those thugs were the product of a society that in a twisted and tangential way thought that white Christian America was being preserved through state-imposed segregation and a segregation that was tolerated by most of the churches. We aren't seeing violence like this today. But we necessarily must continue to fight to maintain religious liberty. You know, we think of Jack Phillips, the Colorado baker, who happily won in the Supreme Court. Uh, he has more work to do with, in, the, in the courts. Uh, but so far, he won. Lori Smith, the designer of websites, uh, won in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court told Philadelphia that they could not exclude foster programs that refused to work with unmarried couples and same-sex couples. And, and this is why, though we aren't facing violence ourselves in carrying out uh, our agenda of re- maintaining religious liberty, we do have the, we are blessed by the organizations that are working uh, to fight for religious liberty and sustain it. The American Freedom Law Center, Thomas More Law Center, the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Beckett Fund. Father Newhouse helped create a community of thinkers and activists who would strengthen our nation's commitment to freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of the, of the press. So, this is my thanks to Father Newhouse, and we pray for the repose of his soul. I'm Al Cresta. CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. Welcome to Advanced Dentistry Center family. This is Dr. Metti and our team strives to treat you like family in a loving and compassionate way as we focus on serving you in a Christ-like manner. We do this by emphasizing prevention and general well-being for a lifetime. Our private practice is small, personal, 
state-of-the-art and innovative with the goal to educate and motivate our patients in improving their oral health. It is through a partnership with you that you will achieve the goals for your smile. Advanced Dentistry is serious about the level of care we provide with attention to details and an exceptional level of care, skill, and judgment. We are thrilled for the opportunity to serve you. Dr. Matthew and the team invite you to visit them at AdvancedDentistryCenter.com or call them at 248-594-9592. That's 248-594-9592. AdvancedDentistryCenter.com. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angel creates your pro-life health care durable power of attorney. Accessible anytime on smartphones and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. I'm Al Cresta. Do follow up on our conversations. Uh, the, the witness and the testimony of Claire Colwell, again, a survivor uh, of abortion, and in fact, uh, she had an unborn twin whose life was terminated. Uh, Claire uh, survived. And uh, again, these stories need to be heard, need to be told, because People are not necessarily moved by ideas or philosophies. They're moved by stories, flesh and blood stories, and that's what we had with Claire. Um, my uh, congr- my uh, appreciation for Father Richard John Newhouse and my disappointment in the hole that he left uh, can be followed up. We have Nathaniel Peters' outstanding uh, remembrance in our website. He published originally for public discourse. So if you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can pick it up there. Now, coming up next hour, we'll talk about University of Michigan marching to the national title in the faith that was often shown. But first, we close out our... And then we have Matthew Bunsen giving us church news around the world. On the next Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio. We'll keep you closely connected to the faith with the latest from Rome, the front lines of the pro-life movement, and we'll also take a look at other crucial issues facing you and your family and our one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Weekday mornings at 8 on Ave Maria Radio's 990 AM and 105.5 and 107.9 FM. There is genuine consolation from the Catholic Catechism regarding the death of a loved one. The Christian who dies in Christ Jesus, we are told, is away from the body and at home with the Lord. 
Death marks the end of a Christian's sacramental life, but the fulfillment of his new birth, which began at baptism, now has a definitive conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. The Christian funeral does not give the deceased a sacrament or sacramentals because he or she has passed beyond the sacramental economy. The different funeral rites express the paschal character of Christian death. The greatest consolation to the Christian is the knowledge that even in death, we are separated only temporarily, that one day, if we have lived well, we will all be together again in Christ. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Fire on the earth, Peter Herbeck. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. And one of the things that he meant by that was the Christian people understand the larger story that's unfolding in history. So as St. Paul said, as the saints echoed very clearly, we're now living through just a, a short moment, a slight momentary affliction. Again at 1145 on 990 Ave Maria Radio. 990 WDEO, Ypsilanti, Detroit, W300CO Dexter, an Ave Maria radio station, and on the net at AveMariaRadio.net. Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. This hour we take uh, time with Dr. Matthew Bunsen to go over a number of stories that have been uh, in the Catholic News, um, stories dealing with the Holy Father, uh, we also have a, a very strange story, um, the Dutch bishops, who are generally regarded as kind of you know, pushing, the, pushing the boundaries in a uh, well, progressive direction. Uh, it turns out that they have collectively uh, just simply rejected uh, this latest uh, document or declaration from the... Uh, to Castri for the doctrine of the faith. That's unusual. Uh, the African bishops were not so much a surprise, but the Dutch bishops, definitely a surprise. You know, they published a catechism after the Second Vatican Council that had to be withdrawn. It was, it was criticized that, that heavily, that it had to be withdrawn. I've got a copy of it somewhere, and I always tell myself when I mention that I'm going to spend some time and read it, or read portions of it, and I always forget to do so. So I've been saying that for close to 30 years now. But yeah, I'll make an attempt to try to read portions of that Dutch catechism. Uh, so we've got uh, uh, Matthew joining us, and also we're going to turn our attention to football. It's been a fun few months for football fans in Michigan. We had the Detroit Lions uh, winning a playoff game for the first time in more than 30 years. But the big news has been certainly the University of Michigan Wolverines. They wrapped up a perfect season. 15 uh, consecutive wins, um, no defeats. And they topped it off with a 34-13 victory over Washington in the national championship game. Now, it's been interesting that throughout the season, 
uh, you would see Michigan players uh, in in Coach Jim Harbaugh as well uh, being outspoken about their faith. And I don't know if that's uh, you know disproportionate uh, compared to. Early, earlier seasons or other teams. But that's one of the things we're going to talk with uh, Steve Clark about. Steve is our director of operations here, but he's also uh, a sports broadcaster and was there at the Rose Bowl with uh, and for WTKA. So stay with me. We've got a lot to talk about, but first, the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, January 19th. It's the Feast of St. Philip. Today's news brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Tens of thousands of pro-lifers braved snowy weather for the March for Life in Washington, D.C. The crowds were addressed by several speakers, including University of Michigan head football coach Jim Harbaugh. It's a great example that you're setting. It's testimony for the sanctity of life. It's a great day for a march. The 51st Annual March for Life is the second since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Congress is averting a government shutdown for now. President Biden today signing a stopgap funding bill to keep the government funded into early March. The bill buys lawmakers time to finish the formal appropriations process. The Biden administration is forgiving nearly $5 billion in student debt for about 74,000 Americans. It's the latest round of debt cancellations since the Supreme Court struck down the president's sweeping student loan forgiveness program. Reporters say South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is expected to endorse Donald Trump for president. The move would be a blow to Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley, who appointed Scott to the Senate when she was South Carolina's governor. Alec Baldwin is once again facing involuntary manslaughter charges. New Mexico prosecutors are charging the actor for the onset death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins during the filming of Rust in 2021. Baldwin was first charged in the case last year, but the charges were dropped after Baldwin's lawyers maintained he never actually pulled the trigger. Prosecutors now say tests show that the gun could only have been fired by the pull of a trigger. The S&P 500 and the NASDAQ hitting all-time highs today in stocks. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. In fact, you heard Steve Clark just delivering the news. He's our Director of Operations here at Ave Maria Radio. But he's been covering uh, Michigan football and other sports for uh, WTKA, local station in Ann Arbor, for more than 20 years. You can follow him on, on Twitter at Steve Clark. That's with an E at the end, Steve Clark 2 Good to see you. Al, it's always great to see you. <laughs> well, this, you know, we talked a lot, uh, well, more than usual about this season because it was uh, just remarkable. And... Uh, there are many things to talk about. We have the Coach Harbaugh being sidelined, I think, for six games. You know, that's tough for a head coach. Um, but one thing I did want to make sure we got to was this: what struck me as a disproportionate amount of sharing of faith. I mean, I'm gonna, let me just run a few of these back to back, beginning with uh, Coach Harbaugh's talk. Mentioning of the Holy Spirit, I think it's probably that Peter Herbeck told me he thinks it's the first time in history that the Holy Spirit was ever invoked uh, at the close of a national championship 
or at the Rose Bowl. So let's go through. We'll listen to Coach Harbaugh and then Blake Corum and then Donovan Edwards. It was a journey, a spiritual journey. Just took counsel from God, the Holy Spirit, this team, everybody, unanimous support for each other. You returned to Michigan for this moment. What gave you the faith that this group could get it done? God, you know, God gave me the faith. You know, last year I wasn't here. You know, I said it last week, I'll say it again, I wasn't here, but we came back as a team, we came back as brothers. And this is what we came back for. We came back to get a natty, came back to win from Michigan, and we did it. I'm just so blessed. I'm trying to speechless, just trying to take everything in. It's not difficult for me to, to praise God and, you know, to give him glory because, like, he's always given me, he, he's always been there for me, you know, like, when, when everything was high. So I'd be doing a disgrace to God if I, was, if I wasn't praising him when everything was low. You know, like, I'm not worried about, like, what's going on now because one year doesn't define who I am, right? And I just feel as though, like, it's just God just paying something for me in the long run. And, you know, I'm always going to give him the glory. You know, I still wake up before I, before I wake up or before I put my feet down on the ground. I give God the glory. You know, I, I get on my knees uh, on the bed and I pray and I say, thank you for allowing me to breathe, uh, allowing me to do what is right uh, in, front of, uh, in the sight of you. And uh, just allow me to, you know, to praise your name. Just how we how we doing right now, you know. Just allow me to do those things for him because, you know, my ultimate goal in life is not about the riches or the possessions. My, my ultimate goal in life is to get the will done, my loyal service from, from the most high. So, you know, as long as I continue to do what I'm doing and, you know, staying in a good book and treating people right and treating people how I want to be treated, I know that, I know that everything's going to work out for me. And then we had uh, Coach Harbaugh uh, invoking the Holy Spirit uh, after the national championship was won. Blake Corum, uh, the outstanding running back. And Donovan Edwards, uh, who had a really strong finish uh, in the season. All, you know, making explicit references to God, faith, blessing. And Coach Harbaugh, as Peter Herbeck told me, he thinks it's the first time the Holy Spirit was ever publicly uh, uh, thanked after a national championship. With me again, Steve Clark, uh, sports broadcaster with WTKA and director of operations for us here. What about it? Was is, it, it starts at the top. Yeah, with Coach Harbaugh. If you remember, it was probably what a year and a half ago where he spoke out locally here in Plymouth, Michigan, uh, for pro-life. That's right, and it drew attention locally. Um, in fact, it drew a lot of negative attention. Yeah, locally. Yeah. Uh, University of Michigan is a liberal town to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a liberal school. Um, we all know what we think of, of the media usually in these situations. <laughs> right. Um, but the thing is, Jim Harbaugh's had a lot of collateral behind him. And I think it's one of the reasons why he was able to get away with it, yeah. is that he has spoken up for minorities. He is um, he has spoken up, um, you know, for the poor. He has spoken up for women. He, he's, he, he's done a lot for liberal causes yeah. as well. Yeah. And so now you have a whole bunch of people with diverse backgrounds, whether they're Christians or they're Jewish or they're Muslim, they're all on this football team. But there's one thing that there is there. There is a faith yeah. and that there is a belief in God. So he welcomes that and he accepts that. Yeah. And the players who are growing up 
still learning about their faith. That's true. They're, you know, young, they're, they're young men. 18 yeah. to 22 years old, yeah. maybe 23, 24, some of them. They're learning as things go, but they're in an environment where they feel like they can talk about it yeah. and not feel like they're being squelched or not being able to reveal their feelings for fear of either you know being canceled, ostracized, or whatever. Yeah. Um, when Jim was able to get away with making pro-life statements, I think, and and being able to share what he believes in. If you remember, he talked about if if players got uh, people pregnant, he would be willing to adopt. I remember that. And, and, yeah. and the reaction was, was a lot of mocking and from, you know, insin- from ranging from insincerity um, to not doing enough. Well, that, <laughs> those who know Coach Harbaugh knows that this was not insincerity. No, he would have done it, <laughs> and but there's some people who just wouldn't believe it. But but because he has stood up for other causes, yeah, yeah, uh, I think that's allowed him to be able to continue on. Also, winning cures everything. That's that's another <laughs> thing. Uh, you know, it covers a multitude a, of sins. People yeah. have a problem. You know, winning usually take kind of takes care of it. So. Again, this kind of trickles down to the players feeling like they can open up. I know there's at least one media member who is a Christian who is actually trying to help some of those players speak out a little bit more forward. Wow. And, you know, the exact opposite of what you would come to expect. Yeah, but, yeah. But there are people out there that says, hey, let's expand on that. And let's let's actually, if you want, let's do a show on that. Yeah. And so the players are, are trusting. Uh, people are a little bit more open-minded. And, again, winning helps. Yeah. Now, I'm curious. You've seen a lot of uh, sports, uh, a lot of football. Did it does it did it appear to you that this there was more of we might say God talk this year than in previous seasons? Well, you know, I mean that's it struck me, but again, I'm not I don't watch it that carefully. Again, winning teams generally have you know more consideration and more discussion about that. Dabo Sweeney at Clemson, he's won a couple of national titles. There's no there's no doubt that he's a Christian yeah. and that he yeah. wears that out on his sleeve too. Um, it's not necessarily Catholic, but yeah. Regardless, it's it's there, and uh, he too has been criticized or or mocked for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, generally people pay attention to the list, uh, to the winners a little bit more. Um, Southern schools have a little bit generally more yeah. uh, Christianity okay. invoked in, 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 into their university speeches. But this is a little bit different. There's a lot of athletes that say I couldn't do this without the Lord. It's almost clicheish in some way, but this was kind of spelled out. A little bit differently in the postgame celebration yeah. after Washington. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought, too. Uh, so everybody likes to uh, judge uh, the status of a team in history. Do you think this is the best Michigan football team in our lifetime? Yeah, in our lifetime, Al? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think the most co- closest comparison is, you know, the last team that won a national championship for Michigan was the 1997 team. Uh they split their national champion with Nebraska, but Michigan had won like five of the six, you know, voting regions. And only the coaches' poll went over to Nebraska. Hmm. Uh, but so people will still define that as split, even though there was, you know, five trophies to one. That Michigan team had a Heisman Trophy winner and Charles Woodson on top of that. Right. But this right. Michigan team, I think a lot of people are taking not just the games into account, where the, it was against heavily ranked teams on the back end of that schedule. They dominated the front end. They won against a lot of ranked teams on the back end. They beat the number two team twice 
Yeah. Uh, they beat a number four team, and they beat another top ten team on the road. That and all of the investigations that were going on by everybody, Jim Harbaugh being suspended, assistant coaches being suspended, having the players going through that and knowing that yeah. if they would lose a game, rightly or wrongly, their legacy was going to be written in a different path that they had lost a game. Yeah. If you yeah. noticed, when there was these accusations of sign stealing, there was a difference of opinion about how much it influenced their winning along the way. And I'm, I just know for a fact that, that uh, you know, history is written by the victors. Right. And for them to continue to win, it showed that it really had not a whole lot to do with it. <laughs> if they had lost, though, the first game against a ranked team, yeah. with everything being exposed... Basically, everybody's opinion would be, see, see told you. Yep, you know, that they've been exposed. They can't do it. So the, the yeah. players knew it. The coaches knew it. There was so much pressure on the Michigan legacy to be able to do something that very few teams can accomplish, and that is have an undefeated season. Michigan did that, and that's why this team is more amazing than our lifetime. Is there an easy way to explain the sign-stealing controversy? No. No, there is no easy way. How much time we have? We have about like about two, two minutes. minutes. Yeah. No, impossible. Impossible. But uh, this still be, it is still to be decided on. Uh, okay. There's still an investigation going on officially. Who's, who's, who's doing the investigation now? The NCAA Infractions Committee is looking okay. at things. They haven't even announced their findings yet. And when they announce their findings, the University of Michigan has 90 days to respond to those allegations. They can defend it. They can come to a compromise. Or they can accept uh mm -hmm accept the notice. Hard to say how that will happen. Right. It's hard to say who on the Michigan coaching staff left over could be suspended into the future. What about players? Vacating the wins. These are things that are all up in the air. Um, well, there's, okay. a, there's a lot more There's a lot more to it. Unfortunately, so, we won't have the time to specifically get into it. Yeah, it is a complicated matter. I know that the uh, Interactions Committee has a member on it that uh, doesn't care for Jim Harbaugh. So yeah, we could probably assume that, but there is this, you know, there is this deal about how what's being done. How illegal is it? It is illegal by the definition, but it was made a rule based on a cost-cutting measure, not a competition one. So a lot of people say that this is like one of the most outrageous scandals in cheating in all of sports. But the rule was created as an economic rule yeah. to help teams that you know don't have as much in their budget to prevent being forced in their hand to go out and do advanced scouting. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, uh, 45 seconds. Jim Harbaugh going to the NFL? I think it's a poss real possibility. Okay. It has been that way the last couple of years. Uh, when you win a national championship and you win three straight Big Ten championships and you beat Ohio State three years in a row, the NFL is finally going to pay attention. Yeah. And, and those that are desperate for a winner... Coach Harbaugh has won everywhere he's been. Uh, give me a name. Who's going into the NFL? Uh, for Michigan, J.J. Yeah. McCarthy's going in the NFL. Okay. His quarterback, starting yeah. running back, uh, Blake Corum, is going in the NFL. And basically, his entire offensive line is going in the <laughs> okay. NFL. Steve, thanks so much. It's a great team. And it's also good seeing you there at the Rose Bowl. <laughs> Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life health care durable power of attorney. 
accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. New Year's resolutions are here, and the top of everyone's list is start eating better. But food need in Southeast Michigan is at an all-time high, and folks need your help. Not to eat better, but to eat it all. This year, make a resolution that makes lives better. Partner with Hope Clinic to provide free medical, dental, food, and behavioral health care, all in Jesus' name. Right now, you can take Hope Clinic's 2024 challenge. Sign up to give 2024 a month to show that you value whole person care. Because the true definition of eating better in the new year is knowing that your neighbors have enough to eat, too. Take the challenge now at thehopeclinic.org. Hi, Vanessa Denhagarmo here, inviting you to tune into Epiphany. We're made to praise God and celebrate our faith. I want to encourage listeners to connect, communicate, and collaborate with the faith community. Life is a journey, and along the way we have those Epiphany moments that bring us closer to Christ. Please partner with me and celebrate the diversity of our Catholic Church. Epiphany, weekdays at noon, only on Ave Maria Radio. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Want a simple way your family can share Christ's love with someone today? Practice the ministry of kindness. Kindness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's an outward sign that the Holy Spirit is alive in our hearts. So when your family goes out to dinner, or runs errands, or goes out for any reason, remind each other that your mission is to leave everyone you meet a little bit happier than you found them. Be sure to speak politely to the server at the restaurant. Smile at the people in the store. Let someone go ahead of you. Remind your kids to hold the door for others instead of running them over. Look for little ways you can give others a little hug from God through your loving witness. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. If you only see the difficulty in parenting, you will never see the treasure. Catholic Charities of Southeast Michigan are devoted to helping moms see the treasure at every stage of life. Project Hope provides material assistance and guidance. Adoption, foster care, and counseling services are also joyfully offered. Our Walking with Moms in Need initiative provides help and hope at every turn. To get involved or make a financial contribution, visit ccscm.org slash mom. That's ccscm.org slash mom. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Good afternoon, 
I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News. He's the author or co-author of more than 50 books, including the first English-language biography of Pope Francis and the Encyclopedia of Catholic History. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt. M-A-T-T, Bunsen. And it's good to have you back. Thank you. Uh, great to be with you. Yeah. Are you in Washington? I am. A very snowy Washington. And, yeah. of course, today was the, the March for Life. Right. Uh, so that's something that, uh, obviously, all of us as uh, supporters of the pro-life movement need to consider very important, especially now, given the, the strategic shift of the landscape. Right. Since Dobbs, yeah. Uh, turning things back to the states, and uh, I understand each state is going to be conducting its own, or at least that's the ideal, each state will be conducting its own March for Life. I think in addition to, or maybe in place of, uh, the annual January Mar- March for Life. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how this uh, all shakes out. I know that uh, the, the March for Life here in Washington, D.C. remains uh, a very important statement uh, for, for two reasons, I think, personally. The, the, the one is keeping the issue, the preeminent issue, as the bishops uh, have reiterated, uh, in the forefront of the political discussion. Uh, the other is, in light of that, remembering, too, that... Uh, there is a still heavy federal push uh, in terms of codifying Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're seeing a very aggressive Biden administration doing everything in its power to advance abortion across the country. And we know that uh, this is going to be one of the pillars of the Biden campaign in 2024. Let me ask about an unusual story, and that is that the Dutch bishops have rejected blessings for same-sex couples. Um, There was some thought that the Dutch bishops were uh, kind of in favor of such things. Uh, Maybe that's just a wrong characterization of them. Well, exactly so. I I was uh, surprised myself. This is a report uh, that came out just today uh, in the Catholic Herald. uh, So it's a a UK Catholic publication. And the title of it, I think, says it all. It says, Chaos deepens as Dutch bishops collectively reject blessings for same-sex couples. Like you, I think many of us had anticipated uh, that there would be at least some push uh, in the Netherlands uh, for a full-on embrace, uh, given the history of um, the, the church in the Netherlands uh, over these last decades. This is the the home, for example, of the infamous Dutch catechism uh, coming out of the Second Vatican Council. So it is a remarkable development that uh, a statement was issued by the Bishops' Conference of the Netherlands that essentially uh, rejected uh, the idea of non-liturgical blessings for same-sex couples and those in irregular relationships. And, and as the, the article notes, it's, it stopped short of authorizing either blessings or prayers for any couples if that could be construed in any way as giving approbation or approval to lifestyles that are at odds with uh, the clear moral teachings of the church. So what, the, what they're proposing instead is that, and this is what is now very much entering into the mix of this, prayers are offered solely for individuals in such relationships, uh, as they say, and this in some ways does connect it to fiducia supplicans in order to invoke God's assistance in discerning his will for the person, but individually. Hmm. That's, that's in their statement. I mean, cause, yes. Because that's been, that was in the... Uh it might have been in fiducia supplicants itself or the or the press release that followed that language is very similar 
Yeah, and the statement adds that the Dutch bishops don't wish to provide or deprive anyone of the support and power of God, but as they say, it is possible to say a prayer about individual believers who live in an irregular relationship. But as it goes on to say, what one asks for in prayer and how one prays are important. For someone living in an irregular or homosexual relationship, the ordained minister can say a simple prayer outside the context of a wedding celebration or prayer celebration. So it's an interesting um, phrase because what we're now seeing is that uh, we now have the Vicious Conference of the Netherlands in basically the same camp as all of the Episcopal Conferences of Africa. Right. And essentially the whole of the Catholic leadership of Africa uh, rejected blessings for same-sex unions, and that was en masse. Uh, we had that the letter that was uh, issued uh, basically stating that this is not possible for them. So now we have a surprise, I think, in Western Europe, because the assumption so far had been that uh, most of the, if not all of the, the bishops' conferences or individual dioceses in Western Europe, with some exceptions, was going to embrace Embrace all of Fiducia. Uh, now, this is uh, going to create, I think, some more questions as to what the response is going to be and how this plays out. Now, there are individual bishops uh, who have uh, stood in opposition oh, yeah. to this document, uh, but those, uh, there aren't any more bishops' conferences? Well, so that's uh, going to be one of the questions. So the, the French. Uh, essentially accepted it, but nine bishops uh, publicly disagreed uh, from the request or the requirement of blessing same-sex couples. Uh, we also have individual bishops in places like the Switzerland, in Brazil, as I recall, in Peru, uh, including Cardinal Sturla, uh, who was an appointment, I believe, by uh, Pope Francis, which itself was surprising. Uh, and then we have pretty wide acceptance of it among bishops in Ireland, in Hong Kong, of course, uh, India, uh, Portugal, Germany, Belgium, which is no surprise at all, uh, similar to Germany and, and Austria. So, again, the, the West, the Western regions, uh, as one would expect, uh, were the most enthusiastic in the embrace without really any efforts at uh, prevarication in this mm -hmm. uh, to em embrace fiducia uh, supplicants. But this is, uh, again, uh, if this is uh, actually the case, and I have no doubt that it isn't, uh, I think the statement from the Dutch bishops is, is notable. Yeah. We also had, of course, uh, confraternities of priests. We've had priest associations in places like the United Kingdom uh, expressing the, their stern disagreement and unhappiness uh, with fiducia because it places them in such a difficult pastoral position. So how has Pope Francis responded to this resistance to fiducia supplicants? Yeah, uh, well that's been uh, one of the more interesting questions in this because uh, Edward Penton just has a, a new piece out uh, at the National Catholic Register and Francis has been and I think the word to use for there would be undaunted. Uh, he spoke just a few days ago uh, that, as far as he's concerned, uh, this is largely a, a misunderstanding. Uh, and uh, he, when he was addressing the Roman clergy on, I think it was just a couple of days ago, January 13th or so, he said that uh, it's sometimes you don't accept the decision because you don't understand it. But he adds that the danger is when I don't like something and I set in, in my heart, I become resistance and come to ugly conclusions. And he said this has happened with the last decision about blessing everyone. So he's, he's sticking to his guns that uh, he feels that this is necessary. And, and certainly as the Holy Father, that's uh, his, his privilege to do sure. so. Yeah. The next question is going to be, 
how Cardinal Fernandez does two things in my mind. The first is now how he navigates uh, with the African bishops, because let's remember that the, the letter that was issued by them reiterated that they are they consider themselves in full and absolute communion with Pope Francis, even though they, they are disagreeing with this or are unable to apply it. But they made note of the fact that the, their letter, which speaks for the, basically the whole of Africa in terms of the Episcopal conferences and bishops, was done so with the full awareness beforehand of Cardinal Fernandez and Pope Francis. So this wasn't something out of left field. Mm. And that, that I think, is notable. The, the other task uh, that sits before Cardinal Fernandez, and we know that this is coming rapidly upon us, is how he's going to deal with those bishops who are still already planning to go well beyond uh, the intent and what is foreseen in fiducia supplicans relating to these same-sex blessings. We know that there's a, a push among the Germans and elsewhere that they want a, a, a formal liturgy to accompany these same-sex blessings, which everyone would equate, obviously, with a, a same-sex union. Yeah. We know that the individual bishops are already doing that. How Cardinal Fernandez responds to that, because he has said in several interviews that, no, that has to, to stop. That simply won't work. And we're seeing increasing unhappiness then uh, among advocates for the LGBT movement uh, within the church who are also unhappy with fiducia supplicants because they simply, well, as, as they have put it, it doesn't go far enough. And there are so many provisions in there and so many provisos in there that why are we bothering, I think, is what some of them are saying because yeah. it certainly isn't what they want. Yeah, I, I thought uh, I saw one text exchange uh, between a... Activist, a gay activist, and uh, in a, a more orthodox uh, Catholic, and the gay activist was saying that he thinks it, 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 this document is terrible, <laughs> right? <laughs> because it doesn't, it doesn't really, it doesn't provide for a recognition of same-sex unions. It basically. It puts blessings uh, of of these couples uh, on the same level of you know a bishop or a priest blessing the opening of a little league season or something. <laughs> right. So well, you know exactly, and uh, the way too that the the clarification when it was issued by. Cardinal Fernandez also again reiterated, yeah. well, this is a prayer that shouldn't be more than 10 or 20 seconds. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there shouldn't be any sort of a formal text. And then he offered what could be a sample text uh, that was, by any reading, very generic, uh, again stressing that this must not be conducted or, or given in anything that would be approaching an altar or a formal setting. Uh, you can't have vestments and everything else. Right. That's certainly not the immediate response to Fiducia, as you and I have talked. Yeah. Uh, immediately when it came out, we had a very prominent uh, celebrity priest uh, yeah. who was very active, uh, who just gave apparently a simple and spontaneous blessing to a same-sex couple in his apartment in New York. Then it just so happened that the photographer for the New York Times was there. Yeah, very spontaneous. <laughs> right. And we had a, a similar one. I think it was. I think it was in the diocese of Lexington, uh, where you, it was very clearly uh, in a very formal setting. The priest had a stole and everything else. So those questions remain to be answered. What sort of steps are going to be taken uh, either to censure that uh, or, again, to make it clear that that type of a blessing is not what is foreseen or allowed uh, by this decree? And then we have the ongoing discussion, too, of the ecumenical fallout 
Uh, Cardinal Kurt Koch just gave an interview, in fact, to Vatican News. I know that, that we've been talking to him about uh, the ecumenical ramifications of this because the Orthodox are very unhappy yeah. Uh, yeah. with fiducia and we already have seen within the Eastern Catholic churches, uh, for example, the Ukrainian Greek Catholics uh, simply announced that this is not possible in, under the, the canons uh, that, that govern them legally, yeah, economically. Their, their understanding of blessing is always liturgical. Exactly. Yeah. And then we had the similar comments from Metropolitan Hilarion of the Orthodox, the, the Russian Patriarchate of Moscow. So this is uh, not far from over. Matthew Holder will take a break and continue the conversation. My guest, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, taking a look at church news. More coming up. I'm Al Cresto. The priests of Mila's Christi Religious Order invite you to participate in their spiritual exercises retreats. The first retreats of the year are for men in Holly, Michigan from February 9th to the 11th and Libertyville, Illinois, from February 16th to 18th. For a complete list of upcoming dates and locations of retreats offered for both men and women, or to register for a retreat today, visit MilasChristi.org or call 248-596-9677. That's MilasChristi.org. K. Roo's Jewelry has made it their mission to provide custom jewelry at unbeatable prices. As a master diamond setter with 45 years of experience, Tony K. Roos will create the perfect engagement ring, anniversary gift, or even do complex repairs at a fraction of the cost. Visit K. Roos Jewelry at 504 Main Street in Belleville next to T-Mobile or call 734-444-2323. That's 734-444-2323. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. Are you experiencing spiritual desolation? Are you considering changing a spiritual decision that you made before the experience of spiritual desolation began? St. Ignatius of Loyola gives guidance in the fifth rule of his 14 rules for the discernment of spirits. St. Ignatius is clear. In time of desolation, never make a change, but be firm and constant. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, The tactic of the enemy in the darkness of spiritual desolation is to suggest that we reverse the decisions made in preceding times of light. Into this trap, says Ignatius, we must never fall. Rather, we must remain firm and constant in such proposals through the time of spiritual desolation. Spiritual desolation is a time that calls us to constancy and fidelity. For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus Christ is literally and wholly present, body and blood, soul and divinity, under the appearances of bread and wine. Feeding 5,000 from a boy's five barley loaves and two fish, as recorded in John chapter 6, is quite a miracle. Yet the next day, Jesus downplays it in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Likewise, God's provision of manna to the Israelites in the desert was also a great miracle. Yet Jesus similarly downplays it in verse 49. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus is clearly stating that his Eucharist is greater than both of these amazing miracles and the Catholic Church absolutely takes him at his word. Examining the truths of the Catholic faith, this is faithforensics.org. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. I'm Al Creston. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen of your local church news around the world. Uh, Pope Francis threw out a, a statement on a primetime talk show where he said, I like to think of hell as empty. Well, uh, you know, I, I don't know anybody who wants to think of hell as full, but <laughs> at the same time, this runs the risk of giving the impression that... Um, well, a number of passages in, in the Gospels, especially in Matthew 25, that in fact, um, you know, if hell is empty, then in all likelihood it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So, There's a name that immediately came to mind when I saw this quote, and that is uh, Eugenio Scalfari, uh, who was the... I think he's passed, but uh, the at the time the nonagenarian uh, yeah, editor, yeah. atheist, uh, a very prominent journalistic figure in Italy. Mm-hmm, I remember uh, who interviewed Pope Francis was maybe seven, eight years ago, and he very famously did these interviews, uh, and then in his mind transcribed his notes, but he didn't actually take notes; he did everything by memory. Right, and there he uh, quoted Pope Francis as saying essentially what. Pope Francis said here, with the interesting little missing detail, uh, that where Pope Francis, I think, tried to be a little more clear this time, where he said, what I'm going to say is not a dogma of faith, but my own personal view. Yeah. I like to yeah. think of hell as empty. And then he adds that key, I hope it is. That portion was missing from Scalfari's notes years ago that caused the first major uproar uh, surrounding uh, whether Pope Francis is a universalist, that sort of thing. It, it has made me wonder, in fact, if Pope Francis didn't say, because Pope Francis likes to repeat key phrases like this, mm-hmm. uh, for example, the, the famous and uh, fascinating comment of uh, a, a procuring an abortion is like hiring a hitman that he uses right. frequently. Right. To the point that I wonder if, in fact, he said something almost exactly like this to Scalfari, but Scalfari left off, yeah. you know, omitted, uh, that I hope it is and that this isn't the dogma of faith. So, uh, to be fair to Pope Francis, I think this is one of those comments where 
he is at least trying to be clearer uh, in what he's saying than what was previously attributed. Yeah, yeah, and then this plays into this whole conversation uh, which has been going on about universalism and uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar's mm-hmm. book, uh, Dare We Hope. Uh, it, it seems clear that this is, again, as you say, uh, this is a this is a, a Pope Francis's attempt to be generous um, and again who, who who wants to think of hell is full I mean right so yeah okay well and uh, it's consistent too with one of the the major themes of this pontificate uh, from very from the very first night of his election and that is this idea of God's loving mercy right and how he has used that phrase that we can fall down so many times but God will always be there to pick us up yeah so it's this uh, this plea on the part of Pope Francis to remember God's loving mercy and to turn to that uh, so I think in, in terms of um, his comments on hell this is probably the one that is the most clear in his aspiration that it is a hope and a personal view rather yeah. than uh, yeah. some statement of dogma. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, move on here. You're talking about, uh, well, I'll pass on that. Let me just take this other one. What do you know about this uh, two, 2.7 million people uh, gathering in Venezuela to accompany the image of the divine shepherdess virgin? Uh, that's a lot of people. That is be, a lot of people. To be in procession. Yes. Well, I think it's an indicator, uh, much as we have seen in other places, uh, in Nicaragua, for example, where there are determined efforts uh, to remind people of the importance of the faith, that in a country like Venezuela, which itself has fallen into uh, into the, the clutches of a very corrupt dictatorship, in this case of the Maduro regime, that to have these statements uh, are deeply significant because it, it's a statement of hope. So in this particular case, you had, uh, as you say, 2.7 million people in uh, Parquisameto in, in Venezuela. And this is just a couple of days ago, last Sunday. Uh, and the image of the Divine Shepherdess is something that dates back uh, to the early 18th century in Spain and there was uh, an image of the the Blessed Mother as a shepherdess holding a shepherd's crook that's surrounded by sheep and the the painting that depicted it really spurred uh, great devotion uh, as one can imagine especially in rural areas and that was eventually translated to Venezuela uh, where it remains a very popular image and in this case, the, the procession marched through this city uh, to the, the cathedral there. And then there was a, a mass. And it's been held quite a bit. But I think this particular time uh, was a spiritual and, I think, a cultural statement to the Maduro government. Well, in, con- in contrast to... Let's move to Nicaragua here. Where there's some news. Yes. Um, Ortega has released Bishop Alvarez. And uh, I guess another bishop, and then you've got the story of uh, two of the exiled bishops speaking uh, in California, near Los Angeles, about what their experience was like in the uh, in Nicaragua under the Ortega regime. Uh, so, tell me, do we know much of the content of what these bishops are saying? 
Well, we know that uh, with uh, the Alvarez uh, case in particular, uh, that this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we're seeing uh, coming out of Nicaragua. And I, I think that any statement uh, where they're now going to be able to speak out, I think, is going to have some significance. In terms of the details, we'll just have to see. I think there, there's a lot more to understand about what's happening there. And Bishop Alvarez uh, and a, a, another bishop have gone to live in the Vatican. Is that right? Well, that was the understanding. Uh, essentially, they were sent to the Vatican. Uh, and so in this case, it was Bishop Alvarez, as you note, and Bishop Isadora Mora. Uh, and a large number of the other exiles. Uh, it, I suspect uh, that this was part of some negotiations. It's hard to know exactly what that all entailed. Uh, but we know that the way that the dictatorship uh, issued a statement thanking uh, both Pope Francis and Cardinal Pietro Parolini as the Vatican Secretary of State, uh, and they mentioned the respectful, quote, and discreet coordination that allowed the release of these two bishops, the 15 priests and two seminarians, and that they were received by Vatican authorities. So it's a an interesting solution. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the release of Cardinal Minzenti uh, from his uh, long place in sort of exile yeah. in the, the American embassy uh, in Budapest uh, back in the days of the communist uh, Marxist atheist regime in Hungary. Mm -hmm. uh, I would be interested to know how involved Bishop Alvarez was himself in the negotiations and, and what potentially uh, may have been given up for his return. But at the end of the day, I think that uh, his release is important because now the worst fear is not going to happen, uh, which would be his death in prison or worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we now have a very powerful set of voices to be speaking about what's happening in Nicaragua. Now, from the Ortega regime standpoint, this is considered perhaps a win because they are able to rid themselves without uh, international unhappiness mm -hmm. of, of one of the most important critics and faces and voices for the suffering people of Nicaragua. Uh, switching gears here, the famed... Uh Director Martin Scorsese has confirmed that um, a script for his new movie is now finished, and that new movie is under the working title, A Life of Jesus. Uh, he's basing it on A Life of Jesus uh, as portrayed in uh, Shusaku Endo's book of the same name. Mm -hmm. And uh, how far, do we know how far along this is? Uh, we don't, uh, other than uh, generally, as you know, that if uh, a script is finished, uh, that's critical uh, yeah. to the making of any film. Uh, as he said, he, he sees the film being about 80 minutes long, uh, which for Scorsese, anyone who's followed Scorsese films know that that is uh, yeah, one true. of the shortest uh, uh, in, in his long and, and I certainly can all recognize illustrious career. Mm -hmm. I think. Many of us uh, who are aware, for example, of the, the controversial 1988 film, The Last Temptation of Christ, I, I think there was a hope that he would not revisit uh, this territory, uh, but he seems uh, convinced that this is something he wants to do. Yeah. Uh, he says he's actually responding uh, to the Pope's appeal uh, to artists. Uh, so I, I think that's fascinating. Uh, yeah, it, it, we'll have to see what he does with this. Um, it comes, as you know, with the, this cultural phenomenon surrounding the Chosen. Uh, 
Yes. And it comes before the anticipated, I'm not sure what the details are at this point, of um, the upcoming sequel or prequel or however one wants to describe it. I think it's a sequel to The Passion uh, by Mel Gibson. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing, I think, a, a continuation of real interest uh, in the life of Christ within the cinematic and, and television environment that the question is, are they any good and are they actually going to be uh, worth watching? Yeah. Uh, I would have some concerns about another effort on the part of Scorsese uh, to revisit, as I was saying, anything relating to the, the life of Christ in a similar way that I think so many of us were really disappointed uh, with Ridley Scott's take on the life of Napoleon. Yeah. I didn't see that, by the way. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, yeah, I'll take it off my list. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as I often say to my wife, uh, I watched it for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shusako Endo, the Japanese uh, writer, yes. um, it, it was a committed uh, Christian. Um, I don't know if he stayed in full communion with the Catholic Church or not, but he... He's commented on his own life of Jesus uh, in the past, and he said uh, what he was trying to do was show the motherly side of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw that Scorsese is saying that he wants he wants to focus in on the teachings of Christ and kind of contrast those teachings with organized religion. Right, and, and that I think would be the part that uh, can worry yeah. a lot of us um, because it, it's the Cardinal, then Cardinal Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger is a theologian and then Pope Benedict always talked about this great worry uh, and the reality that uh, Christ is reduced even by some Catholic theologians, uh, to nothing more than one religious figure in sort of a pantheon of religious figures in the modern world. And that what we need more than anything else is to recapture a a deeper understanding of his divinity, the greatness of his divinity, uh, and the fact that he established a church. Uh, Not that he was simply a wise man uh, offering aphorisms and a nice way to live yeah no that's right uh we're running out of time but i want to yeah. ask about uh, in in india the catholic bishops conference is uh responding to widespread uh female feticide is this is uh not a surprise to um a lot of people who have been following some of these stories yeah uh, i remember this from 30 35 years ago but i didn't know it was continuing yes what we're seeing is a a, a tendency in, in much the same way that we do in china uh for same sex selection uh for abortions obviously in favor of men and the same results that it had in india and in china we're likely to see in india but this is just a horrendous development yeah matthew thanks once again great being with you yeah a great privilege take care dr matthew bunson i'm al creston Back by popular demand is our trip through Portugal, Spain, and France. 
We start with the day in Fatima, following all the steps of the little shepherds. Santiago de Compostela, the ending point for the El Camino, is the home of the largest incenser. Visit the tomb of St. James the Apostle. Three days in Lourdes, which is quite indescribable. You'll have to come and see it to believe it. To learn more about your Ave Maria radio trip, find the Ave Maria radio travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net. Food for the journey, Sister Ann Shield. No, we would avoid a lot of difficult arguments just spouting off at the mouth, as we sometimes say. Just ask the Lord, give me the words to say. Maybe I'm rightfully angry, but if I just shout and yell and scream, what good is that going to be? Brothers and sisters, God can give us much more control over our anger, over our fear over our language. And so whenever you're in a tight spot, just stop for a moment and say, Lord, what would you have me do here? God is good. I don't mean he's going to say words that will come down from heaven. But if you pause just for a moment, you'll get hold of yourself and you may well get a thought that you didn't have before. And sometimes it's just quiet, but it's enough to bring down the steam. And then you think what is really right to say here. You might be justifiably angry. How do we respect the other person while we're correcting them? Please, brothers and sisters, let us open our hearts to God in those moments. Sister Ann Shields gives you food for the journey. Weekday mornings at 645 and again at 1130 on 990 Ave Maria Radio. Thank you so much for spending this week with me. I'm very grateful uh, to have uh, listeners who are so engaged. I really do enjoy hearing from you as well. Um, many of those questions that come in sharpen me and give me, you know, allow me to deepen my thinking in areas. Well, you can follow up on our conversations by going to AveMarieRadio.net. We'll have plenty of information there. Uh, topics I talked with um, Matthew Bunsen about. We'll have uh, the news stories related to those topics. And uh, we'll have more than I discussed with Matthew. So you get quite a few other stories to go with it that we just didn't get a chance uh, to go to. Uh, you can also uh, get follow-up information on my con- my conversation with Claire uh, Colwell, who survived uh, an abortion that killed her twin. And uh, we can have, of course, follow-up information on Father Richard John Newhouse uh, that I spoke of. Thanks so much. Lord willing to be back. It's a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, Call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net. You're listening to Ave Maria Radio. Ave Maria Radio.
Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life health care durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Weekdays at 10 a.m., there's more to life. What does God want? Are you struggling to discern what God wants you to do about a choice you're making or challenge you're facing? We'll explore the steps of good discernment. Weekdays at 10 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio. This is Life News Radio. I'm Jim Anderson. Three pro-life bills are percolating through Congress. The U.S. House passed one bill to prevent White House discrimination against states that help needy families through pregnancy support centers. Another insists colleges rely more on resources, less on abortion to solve student pregnancies. And Senate legislation from Tennessee's Marsha Blackburn establishes standards of care for abortion similar to other medical procedures. Under the Woman's Right to Know Act, women would be informed of abortion's risks and the child's gestational age and development. Montana is the latest state to reject language in state initiatives that seek unlimited abortion. At least two other states are challenging abortion proponents' use of poor legal 